Reflections on Shakespeare's Hamlet by Gil Bailey Part 1 So we begin with Hamlet looking to the afterlife with fear of its consequences, a sense of dread about the afterlife. And so he's asked to be in history, to do the historical work of conquering evil by reacting to it and essentially mirroring it. The evil was regicide, and he is to perform a regicide. And this is history's attempt to rid itself of evil. From the point of view of eternity, subspecie eternitatis, as they say, from the, under the aspect of eternity, something else has to happen. Some other response to evil is required. In the Christian moral cosmos, those who hate enough to kill are countered by those who love enough to die. And the great drama, the great cliffhanger, is which has the more power. Those who hate enough to kill or those who love enough to die. And those two emotions swirl around in this play, inside and outside of Hamlet. How do we respond to evil? What is the re appropriate response to evil? How do we destroy evil? The pagan solution is to kill its perpetrators and, of course, to become tainted by the, by the perpetration of the murderous act. Christian solution, according to St. Paul, was to die to sin. Well, both of those are now on Hamlet's plate, so to speak. What is he going to do? I think as a way of understanding his, his most famous soliloquy, we have to look inside for a second. Imagine that Hamlet, because of his exposure to these two sources of universality, the university and Christianity, has come to understand that what history regards as the essence of being which is to say royalty, kings and queens, that's the essence of being. That's, the, that's, that's what it means to be. What history regards as the essence of being might be understood from the point of view of heaven as the essence of non-being. Well, it's not surprising that because of this, his understanding, I'll allude to it in the text in a second, this understanding that what history regards as being most substantial may, from the point of view of eternity, be insubstantial. Not surprising that he would then deliver his famous soliloquy, which goes not to the surface problem, but to the depth of the problem. Up until this point, if we've never uh, seen or read this play, up until this point, we're absolutely convinced, as an audience, that uh, the question is, to kill Claudius or not to kill Claudius? And since he knows that we're laboring under the assumption that that's what the question is, Shakespeare has Hamlet inform us otherwise. Hamlet says, to be or not to be, that is the question. To be or not to be, that is the question. And one of the questions is, where, where, where is being located? Is it located in that universal dimension? Or is it located exclusively in history? And it's myths. 
if it's located in a larger dimension, one's one's uh, one's enthusiasm for for the historical choices diminishes considerably. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the, fling, the, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take up arms against the sea of troubles and by opposing in them. There you have it. React to them or suffer them? Which is it going to be? Standard history? Pagan history, if we could put it that way? says you have to react to them. says you have to become a reactionary. That is what it means to be a reactionary. It's a billiard ball universe. When you get hit by it, you move, you come back and hit it. That's the response. Or to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Something more along the lines of the Christian response. Both of these have to be played out in Hamlet's experience. Then he says, to die, to sleep no more. And by a sleep, to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. He wants to die. To die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream. Ah, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. He, there's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy take, when he himself might his quietus make with a bare bodkin, might kill himself with a, with a dagger? Who would these fardels bear to grunt and sweat under the weary life but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Okay. Fear of this after. Recognition that it has to, these things have to be both considered. Thus conscience does make cowards of us all. And thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er by the pale cast of thought. And enterprises of great pith and moment, with this regard, their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. So conscience has, make, has made him coward or has ruined his ability to act. I, keep want, I keep, want to keep coming back to this universality with its twin sources of the university and Christianity. It's now collided with venality and evil itself and uh, left Hamlet reluctant to live and reluctant to die. The standard repertoire of historical motivations, which would ordinarily uh, get all of us, any of us involved in, in life, Hamlet already at his young age regards as unworthy. He tells Ophelia, I could accuse me of such things that it were better my mother had not borne me. I am very proud, revengeful, ambitious. With more offenses at my beck than I have thoughts to put them in, imaginations to give them shape or time to act them in, what should such fellows as I do, crawling between earth and heaven? He never forgets that. We are errant knaves all. He's seeing his life 
from that universal perspective, and it is crippling his ability to will and act in the context of, of history. I just want to call attention to the, to the three sins he names as impulses in himself that he rejects. Pride, revenge, and ambition. Now, pride, reven revenge, and ambition constitute a kind of Shakespearean catalog of sin. It's the Shakespeare, what passes for the Shakespearean uh, set of commandments. You know what's wrong with the world? That's what's wrong with the world. Pride, revenge, and ambition. Over and over again, Shakespeare goes at those things. That is when one, those are the, those are the enticements that take one down into that swirling vortex that ends where Macbeth ends, see, or Richard II ends. Uh, it's a, it's a horrible plunge into hell itself. And those are the three teasers, pride, revenge, and ambition. I just want to explore them a little bit. Particularly the word ambition, which probably more than any other, I think, for Shakespeare is, is central to the, to the, to this disaster, the spiritual disaster. Ambition comes from, comes from the word which means to go around in circles. Interesting. Ambigo means to go around in circles, literally to go around in circles. Ambicio means to go around canvassing for office. And another version of that, ambios, amb, ambitiosus, means to, likewise, to go around knocking on doors, uh, gathering support. You see, as the word has come into modern parlance, what we've gotten from it is this sense of knocking on doors to try to get support. What we've lost is the original implication of the word, which is to go around in circles. Etymology is always a great source of inspiration for unlocking these things. So ambition is simply to go around in circles. Hamlet has just said, Denmark's a prison, and Rosencrantz says, why then your ambition makes it one. Tis too narrow for you. And Hamlet says, Oh God, I could be bounded in a nutshell and count myself a king of infinite space were it not that I have bad dreams. And Guildenstern says, Which dreams indeed are ambition, for the very substance of the ambitious is merely the shadow of a dream. And Hamlet says, A dream itself is but a shadow. And Rosencrantz, Truly, and I hold ambition of so airy and light a quality that it is but a shadow's shadow. And Hamlet says, Then, are our beggars bodies and our monarchs and outstretched heroes the beggars shadow before going back to the ambition thing this sets up a, a a little symbolism that works through the play here of kings and beggars kings are the insubstantial ones they are ambitious insubstantial and unrepentant beggars are unambitious, substantial, and repentant, because they not only beg for their bread, but, but beg for forgiveness. So there's a little thing set up here about kings and beggars. He says, are our beggars bodies, and our monarchs and outstretched heroes the beggars' shadows? In that little dialogue there between the three of them, 
The word ambition is mentioned four times, the word dreams four times, and the word shadow five times. It's a little cluster of associations about how empty that whole enterprise is. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are taking Hamlet out to the ship to go to England to his death. They come across the army of Fortinbras on its way to fight uh, the Poles over a piece of, of uh, barren wilderness. And they have, Hamlet has a little discussion with the captain of the forces. And the captain says, We go to gain a little patch of ground that hath in it no profit but the name. And they talk about how many people are going to go out there and die. And Hamlet says, Well, the Poles are, won't, won't fight over that. He, oh, no, they're ready. They're ready to go. And Hamlet just sits there. And in, this, is a, this is a version of somebody who is, has now outgrown this, can't go back, but looks back almost in nostalgia, wishing in a way that he could be that way. He says, left alone on stage, he says, Witness this army of such mass and charge, led by a delicate and tender prince, whose spirit with divine ambition puffed, makes mouths at the invisible event, exposing what is mortal and unsure to all that fortune, death, and danger dare, even for an eggshell. He almost wishes he could do it. He marvels that that, that that could still be done. The comparison on revenge would be, with Laertes, it's even more interesting because it raises this question of the conflict between the pagan and Christian responses to evil. Hamlet has, has stabbed Polonius through the curtains and killed him. So he is the, Shakespeare had to create a situation for the, for dramatic purposes. He had to create a situation where Hamlet killed somebody's father so he could set up the comparison. And he had to put the curtain in between them or else it would have been, he would have introduced a character, uh, problem. Because Hamlet, it's the very nature of Hamlet that he is not going to look somebody in the eye and kill them. Till the very end of the play. Uh, so he kills Polonius. Well, Polonius' uh, daughter, Hamlet's former sweetheart, Ophelia, goes mad as a result of that. And Polonius' son, Laertes, gets mad, as you might say, uh, decides to come and come back from France to get revenge. In the last scene of the play, Hamlet says to Horatio, uh, he says, I'm, I'm sorry of, what I've, of the insults I've given to Laertes. He says, for by the image of my cause, I see the portraiture of his. He's had a father killed. He feels revengeful, and he has come back. Well, much before that, when he comes back from France, hot for blood, in him there's no paralysis uh, uh, caused by the conflict between revenge and Christianity. He storms into the king's presence and says, To hell with allegiance, vows. To the blackest devil, conscience and grace, to the profoundest pit, I dare damnation. Now, everything in Hamlet, remember Hamlet? He's thinking about eternity. He's saying, wait a minute. And Laertes says, I dare damnation. He sees, but he's softened. For one moment he's softened because he sees Ophelia. And Ophelia, Shakespeare is doing something interesting here. Ophelia is singing one of these sort of songs in her madness. And she concludes it by saying, God of mercy on his soul. Speaking of her father. And then, she com the, the, after the song, she comments, And of all Christian souls, I pray God, God be with you. What's mentioned is mercy and Christian soul. Right after he said, I dare damnation. And Laertes says, 
Do you see this? Oh, God. It's as though, for one moment, his rage, is it begins to turn to grief for his sister's plight. It begins to soften. His heart softens a little bit. And Claudius, who's got, who has the instinct for knowing when that is happening, interrupts the process and says, Laertes, I must commune with your grief. Goes back to that thing we've used over and over again about grief and grievance. For, for Laertes, his grievance starts to soften into grief and Claudius must bring it back into grievance because that's, that's what he wants to use it for, you see. So the king says, Laertes is sounding very much like Iago in Othello, the tempter. Shakespeare has these great tempter characters. Laertes, was your father dear to you? Huh? Or are you like a, the painting of a sorrow, a face without a heart? Why do you ask this, Laertes said? Not that I think you did not love your father, but that I know love is begun by time and that I see in passages of proof time qualifies the spark and fire of it. That we would do, we should do when we would, for this wood changes and hath abatements and delays as many as there are tongues or hands or accidents, and then this should is like a spendthrift sigh that hurts by easing. Hesitation. Hamlet hesitates for the whole damn play. But Claudius knows, don't introduce hesitation into this. But to the quick of the ulcer, Hamlet, this is the king speaking, but to the quick of the ulcer, Hamlet comes back. What would you undertake to show yourself your father's son in deed more than in words? And it couldn't possibly be clear, Laertes says, to cut his throat in the church. Now, here's somebody who has not let his Christian upbringing get in the way of his pagan response to, <laughs> to the situation. Well, what would you do, Claudius says, cut his throat in the church? And Claudius adds the little theological commentary on that. No place indeed should murder sanctuarize. In other words, there should be no sanctuary to protect the murderer. That's what he means on the surface of it. Underlying implication, which is, which, of which he knows nothing, is that it's okay to perform murder in the church, right? What he means by that, I mean, what he assumes to mean by that, is that murderers shouldn't be able to take sanctuary in a church. But what he, the real implication is that it's okay to murder in the church. No place indeed should murder sanctuarize. Revenge should have no bounds. Now, these are, the, these are the motives that are operating in the, in the play. Hamlet has killed Polonius and has taken his a body out, and Hamlet now is with the king, Claudius, and Claudius says, uh, Where, where's the body? And Hamlet says, well, the body's at dinner. Where's Polonius? Polonius is at dinner. And, uh, Ham and Claudius says, at dinner? And he says, well, yeah, he, he's not the one eating, he's the one being eaten by the worms. All right. Anyway, it's this part of this crazy thing. So Hamlet says to, to the king, your worm is your only emperor for diet. We fat all creatures else to fat us, and we fat ourselves for maggots. Your, and here comes this distinction again. Your fat king and your lean beggar 
is but variable service, two dishes, but to one table. That's the end. So again, you have this little play on the king and the beggar. From Hamlet's point of view, the king and the wet beggar are sitting there talking to each other. He's essentially saying, look, you're going to die, I'm going to die, the worms are going to eat us. Now, Northrop Fry has this thing about, uh, Northrop Fry's book on the Bible, his, his study of the book of Revelation. He says, psychologically, the world ends, the world being the, the worldview, uh, the world ends when the master and the slave become one person and represent the same thing. So that the distinction between master and slave is dissolved, that's when the world ends. In terminology of this play, it's the beggar and the king. And when the beggar and the king can no longer be distinguished, the world, that is to say, the, the worldview, that set of mythological constructs that tells us who's up and who's down and how we're doing and you know where we're going, falls apart. Because you've got to have this Here's the beggar and here's the king to know sort of where you're going and how, how you line up there. See? And suddenly when they dissolve into one another, the whole thing falls apart. It's the apocalypse. And Hamlet has already, is already there. For him, it's already over. He says, you're the king, the worms are going to eat you. I'm the beggar, the worms are going to eat me. That's it. See? And the king says, alas, alas. <laughs> And Hamlet says, now this is the most important line in the play. I mean, it's arguably the most important line in the play. Hamlet says, a man may fish with the worm that hath eat of a king and eat of the fish that hath fed of that worm. And the king says, what does he mean by this? <laughs> and this is Hamlet arriving at the formula for meeting both his historical and eternal responsibilities. Do we know of a worm that hath eat of the king? I'd recommend Claudius. Claudius killed the true king, and he is a worm. So Hamlet says, a man may fish with the worm that hath eat of the king, and eat of the fish that hath fed of that worm. And I suggest what is occurring to him is something like the collision between matter and antimatter as a solution to the problem of evil. So, a man may fish with the worm that had eaten of a king and eat of the fish that, have, that has fed of that worm. And the king says, what does this mean? And Hamlet says, nothing but to show you how a king may go a progress through the guts of a beggar. Of a beggar now, now, how could it go through the guts of the beggar? The beggar is the fish, is the hamlet. So they started talking about uh, worms and beggars and kings, and he, and he comes upon this possibility that he could absorb that evil, digest that evil, and die. In the last scene, Hamlet and, and Hamlet and Laertes are having a fencing. Laertes has poisoned his his. Uh, foil, and uh, Claudius has poisoned a cup. And between those two poisons, they're going to get Hamlet one way or another. Uh, Hamlet takes the strike from Laertes and his poison. 
They drop their swords. Hamlet picks up Laertes' sword and flicks a strike on him by which he is poisoned. The queen drinks the poison that's in the cup. When she drinks it, Hamlet is alarmed. It's very clear he knows it's poisonous. What he didn't know is that the foils were poisoned. Laertes confesses what he's done, and he says the king's to blame. What's easy to miss in all this is how profusely everybody except Claudius apologizes and asks forgiveness of everybody else. But when Laertes says it's the king's fault and the foils are poisoned, Hamlet says the point envenomed to, that is to say he knew clearly that the drink was, I think, the point envenomed to then, venom to thy work. And he gives the king, a, inflicts a wound on the king. I, I don't want to quibble over the moral responsibility of Hamlet for killing Claudius. What Shakespeare has done is created a situation in which evil has rebounded on itself. The evil that was in Laertes' poisoning of the foil came back to Laertes. The evil that was in Claudius in poisoning has now come back on Claudius. So what Hamlet has done is he has behaved in such a way as to cause evil to recoil back on itself. And in the process, die. He took evil into himself, caused it to recoil back on its, that back on its originators, and they all die. So the question for Shakespeare is, is, is there an approach to evil that is not reactionary, but one that finally absorbs evil, evil and dissolves it, concludes it? The exciting story for me in Hamlet is not whether he killed Claudius. What's exciting is the kind of... The, the, the way in which Hamlet and in the other play, Cleopatra, live for those last moments, the last hours of their life or the last moments on stage, the, the nature of their existence is totally transformed. It's also true of Lear. For Lear, it, it only lasts about 10 seconds, but it's worth the price of admission. I'd like to use a Kierkegaard uh, phrase for this. Kierkegaard talks about the need to live in the 11th hour. He says, we're only really alive in the 11th hour. Of course, all of existence is the 11th hour. But we don't allow ourselves to realize that. We, we have ways of telling ourselves that this is the eighth hour, <laughs> or whatever it is. It's the eleventh hour. We just don't know it yet. But occasionally an event will come and jar us into the recognition that this is the eleventh hour. And then this other state of consciousness takes over. That is to say, the delusional stuff just kind of falls away. And there we are where we ought to be all the while, which is what Jesus called the kingdom. The kingdom is spread out over the face of the earth and men do not see it. It's the 11th hour. 
And when do you see it? When can we see it? Jesus said, well, pick up your cross and follow me. Well, wait a minute. You have to, to, it's that realization. Hamlet has been reluctant to live and reluctant to die. He's been paralyzed between those two things. And suddenly, towards the end of the play, there's this strange transformation that takes place, almost as though those two things sat side by side until some tiny catalyst came along and they formed some strange chemical reaction and just blended into each other. And he discovers a kind of freedom that is not willful, but willing. These are just words, but I think it's a way of getting a feel for what's going on. The whole play has been wrestling with, how can I become more willful? And at the very end of the play, he becomes more willing. He neither recoils from evil nor reacts against it. He suffers it and absorbs it and turns it on itself. Now, the willingness, if there's willingness, finally is the willingness to die, which raises the thorny question, almost the technical question, about suicide. Because one of the first things Hamlet told us in the play was, that the everlasting has fixed his canon against self-slaughter. So if Hamlet knows they're going to poison him, and he goes in there anyway, um, we may, he may have to have a lawyer to get into heaven. What's involved here? Well, the, the supreme explication of that dilemma is by these clowns in Act 1 of Scene 5, in the graveyard scene, the gravediggers. The first line in Act 1, Scene 5, the clown says, they're digging the grave for Ophelia, who has, it appears, killed herself. She was found face down in the water. And the assumption is, she was so distraught, she finally killed herself. It's not quite clear. So, it's left up in the air so that Shakespeare can explore this question before moving in to the final scene of the play. So the clown says, is she to be buried in a Christian burial that, hath will, that willfully seeks her own salvation? Notice he doesn't say seeks her own death, but seeks her, willfully seeks her own salvation. And the other says, I tell thee she is, therefore make her grave straight. The crowner hath set on her. That means the coroner has determined. The crowner hath set on her and finds it Christian burial. And the clown says, How can that be? Unless she drowned herself in her own defense. See, that's, that's the legal... And the mur murder, the legal uh, excuse, you see, is that it was done in your own defense. Unless she drowned herself in her own defense. Well, did Hamlet... Uh, die in his own defense. You see, I mean, this is all a reflection on what's about to happen. Oh, he's incredible. The other says, why tis found so? And the clown says, it must be say offendendo, which it, he makes a lot of these mistakes, particularly when he comes to Latin. The, the legal term is say defendendo, self-defense. But he mistakes it and says say offendendo. A self-offense. Now we're talking suicide. Is it say offendendo or say defendendo? 
This is all has to do with what is happening as Hamlet walks into that room where he knows the plot against his life is underway and where he is not going to take any measures to uh, avoid it. Say ofendendo, say defendendo. It must be say ofendendo. It cannot be else, for here lies the point. If I drown myself wittingly, it argues an act, and an act has three branches. It is to act, to do, and to perform. These are just... Argal, which by which he means ergo, Argal, she drowned herself wittingly. And the other says, Nay, but hear you, good man, good man Delver. And the clown says, Give me leave. Here lies the water. Good. Here stands the man. Good. If the man go to this water and drown himself, it is, will he, nil he, he goes. Mark you that. Notice, willy-nilly, only it is spelled out. W-I-L-L-H-E. N-I-L-L-H-E. Here stands the man. No, here stands the water. Good. Here stands the man. Good. If the man go to this water and drown himself, it is, will he, nil he? He goes. Mark you that. But if the water come to him and drown him, he drowns not himself. Argal, meaning ergo, he that is not guilty of his own death shortens not his own life. Now, this is supreme theological commentary on Act 2 of Scene 5. <laughs> well, the, uh, the beauty is really in the state of consciousness of Hamlet. Hamlet tells Horatio how he escaped. He was on board the ship with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to England. What he did while on the ship is he sat up in the middle of the night and went and found the letters. The Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are carrying letters which say to the king of England, take Hamlet and kill him, please. And suddenly he goes and finds those letters while they're asleep, and he writes a new letter, putting their name essentially where his name was, and rolls it back up and sticks it in their belongings. And he's amazed at what, this process of suddenly doing this thing. And he says to Horatio, rashly, he said, I behaved rashly. It was unpremeditated. And praised be rashness for it. Let us know, our indiscretion sometimes serves us well when our deep pop plots do pall. And all through this play, his deep plots have been palling. But his indiscretion suddenly serves him well. And that should learn us. There's a divinity that shapes our ends, rough hew them how we will. So on board this ship in the 11th hour, he knew, by the way, the te there's evidence in the text, clear evidence that he knew that he was being sent to his death. In the 11th hour, he sits up in his cot and begins to, begins to behave spontaneously. And the first thing he does is he causes the evil to recoil on its perpetrators, namely Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Sends them off. He comes back to Denmark having realized that there is a divinity that shapes our end. Refute them how we will. So his willfulness has become willingness, and he steps into Denmark that way. Claudia, Horatio says Claudius is going to know about this very soon. 
And Hamlet says, the interim is mine. The interim is mine. He's lived the whole play either in the past or the future. The interim is mine right now. Be here now. A man's life, says Hamlet, a man's life is no more than to say one. Be right here, right now. And Horatio says, uh, they both know something about this fencing match. And Hamlet says, well, I have misgivings about it. I'm reluctant. I mean, this isn't some romantic, you know, charging to us. He said, I, there's, a, there's a little Golgotha emotion in all this. And Horatio, as soon as he recognizes that, says, well, let's postpone it. See, because then we could kind of get our ducks in a row. You know, we could figure out how to, we could, you know, strategize about it. And Hamlet says, not a whit. We defy augury. There's a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. Now, there's a piece of faith for you. There are 10,000 sparrows out there in that field. They're like flies. And Hamlet says, there's a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. If it be now, tis not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. The readiness is all. Since no man has aught of what he leaves, what is it to leave be time? Let be. Let be. Now, there's this great arc in this poem from the beginning of that famous soliloquy, to be or not to be. It comes over and touches ground again at let be. And he, he, he is living in the 11th hour. It's a totally different state of consciousness. And one in the 11th hour simply will not recoil from or react to evil, but suffer it, absorb it, and return it on its perpetrator. This concludes Reflections on William Shakespeare's play Hamlet. For more presentations by Gil Bailey and information about the Cornerstone Forum, please visit the Cornerstone Forum's website at www.cornerstone-forum.org. Thank you. This concludes Reflections on Shakespeare's Hamlet. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.